Sometimes familiarity of a passage of Scripture causes us maybe to not see all that we need to see or maybe skip over the things that seem quite elementary uh, to us because we have believed them for so long. And I think that the Scripture that we're approaching this morning may be one of those. This is one of the very significant portions that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And I hope that God will help me and help you together as we look at these verses to glean from them uh, at least a few things, not everything. I mean, Scripture is Scripture's alive, and so it, you know, there's, there's always more that could be said than is said. And so maybe as we work through these Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, who is in you just as much as He is in me, if you're a believer, will show you something, will shine light on something, will actually teach you something that maybe I haven't even seen. Uh, how do you like that? That sounds like an arrogant statement that I haven't even seen, right? But uh, sometimes people think, well, the preacher should see it all. Well, the preacher doesn't see it all. And uh, so we're together, and as a body, we ought to be uh, helping one another and seeking to be an encouragement to one another. I'll read the text, verses 13 through 17. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And let me just continue uh, through verse 19. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus has come to a turning point in his Ministry And Matthew is citing that here. He speaks of Caesarea Philippi, a place where he's gone to be alone with his disciples. It was largely a Gentile region, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was the snow-capped mountain that you could see from a long ways away. It was actually very light. It was the northern border of Israel. And it was actually likely, and there's debate over this, but I'm kind of inclined to think that it is the place where we have where the transfiguration takes place, in, in, which is in chapter 17. And I know there's there's some other traditional answers to that, but I think that it's possibly the case. Now, by the time we get into chapter 17, I may have changed my mind, but that's that's at least a possibility. That's that's Caesarea Philippi. More can be said about it, but I I'll let you go ahead and do your own research on that particular location. 
It was at this location that Jesus found himself alone with the twelve who had just been strongly warned against the influence of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees who were blinded to who Jesus really was. And Jesus questions his own disciples. Now, Jesus has already acknowledged that his disciples have faith. He called it little faith. In fact, that's not the first time, as you remember, that he has said that. He called Peter. He actually called Peter little faith. He actually used that language as if he was naming him little faith. Oh, he of little faith. And the way it's worded there, it sounds like he's giving him that nickname at that point, little faith. And it seems like that's true. And it seems like it's true of all the disciples with little faith. They did have faith. And with that little faith, they continued to follow Jesus and they continued to grow in understanding. And that's important to note because this is the way faith works. When we receive faith as the gift from God, that's only the beginning. When you begin to believe, that is only the beginning. And you are growing, growing in your understanding. Faith, this faith is not dormant. And so the things you may hear people say things and you say, well, I've been a Christian for so many years, but I've never heard that before. And you hear it and it sounds true. And you begin to search the scriptures and you find, well, that is true. And your faith grows. And that's what's happening in the lives of the disciples. They are growing. And the growth doesn't end here. It's continuing all the way, not only till Jesus Ascends, the Spirit is sent, but even through their life to the end of their lives. And that's the way it is for you and me. The faith of God's children continues to enable us to see realities about God that would otherwise remain hidden or make no sense to us. And so be thankful today, even if you have little faith like Peter, even if you feel like, boy, I'm just not where so-and-so is, right? I wish I could see the things they're seeing. I'm not there yet. Don't despise where you are if you are anywhere. If you have faith, thank God for that, because it's His gift to you that needs to be working in you. Continue to receive in faith everything that He shows to you. And so this interaction with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, as I have indicated, marks a significant change in Jesus' ministry. For about two years, Jesus has ministered in miraculous ways in the presence of the twelve. And now the time is nearing that he's going to make his way to Jerusalem to be offered up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that is a primary purpose for which he came. But I would suggest to you that's not the only purpose for which he came. But it is primary. Jesus himself has spoken in veiled ways about his coming death and resurrection. But up to this point in his ministry, he hasn't been direct In fact, look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, etc. And then he continues to show him really that, you know, Peter rebukes him. Peter, again, you can see his faith was he had faith, but it wasn't fully informed and and he's growing. And in fact, they didn't quite grasp this idea of the suffering servant. The suffering Savior, the suffering Messiah, 
which Jesus will unpack even more, really, uh, in verses 24 through 28, as He calls upon us to follow Him. But before He speaks directly about His coming death, He first confirms that His disciples know who He is. You see, if He is not truly the Christ, the Son of God, then nothing else matters. Nothing. He might as well be one of the thieves on the cross. If He is not the Christ, the Son of the living God, everything that follows hangs upon the reality of who Jesus is. Everything in this passage hangs upon who Jesus really is. Now, there are two things that no one could deny about this man, Jesus, while he walked upon this earth. In one sense, he appeared to be an ordinary man, didn't he? In fact, just the language as you read through the Gospels, even here, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. I know there were some remarkable instances in Jesus' life, but here, it's like he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi the same way the other disciples did. He, he, you know, on a boat walking. He, 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 in many ways, was simply an ordinary, the appearance of an ordinary man. He was in the likeness of a man, as Paul describes in Philippians chapter two. He looked like one of them. He was in every way human, with one exception: no sin. But in another sense, he was unique. In uh, Acts chapter 4, when the uh, disciples, not the twelve, but when the disciples, the believers were praying, they actually expressed to God, they said something to the Lord about His holy child, Jesus. So from a child, there was something unique about Him, of course, His birth and so forth. There was something about not only His birth, but there was something about His words and His works that set Him apart. No one could deny this. Not even the Pharisees and Sadducees, who in the hardness and blindness of their unbelief finally concluded that he was of Satan. Remember that? They blasphemed. They saw that he was there was something supernatural about him. They couldn't deny that. But he wasn't of God. He was of Satan. And so Jesus was intent on making known to his disciples who he really was. That was part of the two years of ministry was in so that they could see. In fact, Peter later acknowledges in his sermon at Pentecost that God, in fact, approved or attested Jesus by miracles, wonders and signs. You remember that? That was in his message. And so Peter alludes to that. That was part of the purpose of all that Jesus did. But many others saw that and didn't come to the same conclusion Peter did or the disciples. And so at this point, all alone with them, before anything is said about his coming death, Jesus presses his disciples to answer the most significant question of all. Who do you say that I I am? Who do you say that I am? Everything about New Testament Christianity hangs upon the answer, the correct answer 
to this question. It is upon the answer to this question that Jesus says he will build his church. In verse 18, we'll be touching on that, Lord willing, next week. If you're off about who Jesus is, you're off about who God is. This is no minor issue. This must be settled in your mind. It's not something about which we simply debate with people who may disagree with us. It is, it is critical. And faith must rest in this Jesus as its object. And so Jesus' first question to the disciples as they are walking along some way in this remote place, He says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. This was Jesus' most common way of referring to Himself. It definitely had messianic implications. We saw that in Psalm 2, and you can see it in other places. For example, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. I think that's referring to the that's a messianic prophecy, really, of the, res- the ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of of man. But the Son of Man was not a crystal clear reference to himself as the Christ, at least not in the eyes of the, the minds of the Jews. He seldom referred to himself as Christ. In fact, in verse 20, he says, he commanded his, uh, or Matthew says, that he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Because he wasn't ready, for one, to be offered up. And he knew how they might respond. But perhaps it was largely because of the errant views of the Jews in general about the Messiah. Son of man is a phrase or a title that emphasizes his humiliation in his incarnation. And though he did mighty works... As the Son of Man, He wasn't the conquering King that Jews anticipated. And when He, and when the indication of His suffering, and even the acts of of humiliation that He experienced up to this point in His life, it didn't look to Him, and even to the disciples, they may have questioned. In fact, John the Baptist says, Are you the one that we look for? Is there another? His true identity was in one sense veiled by his humanity. Which brought the words to that hymn, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, veiled. And unless it was revealed, the answer to who is this son of man was pure guesswork. And so the disciples responded to Jesus in verse 14 with the opinions that abounded then and they continue to abound to this day as to who Jesus is. And none of these answers are intentionally derogatory. And so when the disciples are answering Jesus' question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They don't talk about the Pharisees and Sadducees who said that he was basically a demon or he was of Satan's sort. 
They answered him with all of the positive reviews. And these were positive reviews. Some say John the Baptist. And some Elijah and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And think about it. That would have been quite complimentary if Jesus were merely a man. Probably the influence of Herod caused some, I don't know about many, to say that he was John the Baptist back in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist. Just Jesus. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. So that, that was the, the view of some. He was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others believed that he was Elijah. And so the superstitious fears of, of Herod led him to conclude what he concluded. And it was a superstitious kind of explanation. But some said Elijah. And this, this was more biblical. Jesus did miraculous things that made him kind of look like Elijah, didn't he? Remember, Elijah fed a widow woman with a little bit and it multiplied. And he also raised her child from the dead. That, that kind of, I mean, Jesus did things that looked a lot like that. And also remember, Elijah didn't see death. And so some expected him to appear before the Messiah came. And why would they expect that? Why Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 actually indicated, indicates that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so there was this thinking that Elijah would appear before Messiah would come. And of course, you know, Jesus has already indicated, you'll indicate it again, that John the Baptist was Elijah. The spirit of Elijah was evidenced in John the Baptist's life and ministry, fulfilling that prophecy. Then there were others. They said the disciples were there others. And that word others there, there are others of of a different kind. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, others, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And, and maybe these were the deeper thinkers. Maybe these were the, the, the scholastics, the scholars. I mean, the ones who really knew the Old Testament scriptures. And, and maybe knew other writings that reflected on the scriptures. And they came up with these ideas about who Jesus might be. And of course, Jesus spoke in prophetic tongues like Jeremiah. In fact, he spoke words of judgment, but he also was a man of sorrows. And both of those things kind of resemble Jeremiah's ministry. And so some of the studied Jews anticipated that one of the prophets would come back. In fact, Moses said that there would be a prophet. Remember, there would be a prophet. The Lord said a prophet like you. And so that so so it wasn't strange that some of these would say, well, he he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And, you know, these all represented opinions about Jesus from those who really didn't know. They can only guess. Based upon their natural reasoning. Whether that reasoning was based upon Bible interpretation, remember, they had a Bible. They had the Scriptures. Or whether it was based upon extra-biblical scholarship, or maybe it was based upon the religious teachers of the day, superstitious suppositions, or whatever the source, 
that may have informed their minds. They were searching for something, for an answer. Who is this? Something about him is unique. Who is he? And one thing they all had in common, they didn't know. They were guessing. And the other thing they had in common is they were all wrong. And brethren, that has not stopped for the last 2,000 years. There have been speculations and there have been theologies and there have been people who have, who have put together ideas. In fact, even in the last century, there were those, who the, the Jesus people and those who were searching to, to find the true Jesus, who the real Jesus is. And there's scholarship out there right now who are continuing to do that, trying to uncover who the real Jesus is. They don't know. They're guessing. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he said to them in verse 15, because there's a sense in which it doesn't matter what everybody else says. And if I can at this moment just personalize this with you, it's true for you. It really doesn't matter what everybody else says. Who do you say that I am? This does get very personal, and I'll close the message with personalizing this. But this is really what matters, and Jesus says, this is what matters with you. You are my followers, you're my disciples, and what matters is who do you say that I am? And you notice, he doesn't first say, what do you think I'm going to do? Jesus is not yet focused on what he came to do, but on who he is, because this is fundamentally important. And it's, a, it's fundamentally important for you and for me. And Simon Peter wastes no time answering for the group. Now, he's answering for himself. It is his confession, in fact, so much so that Jesus actually, when he responds, he doesn't respond to the group, he responds to Peter. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that more carefully next week, Lord willing. But the rest of the disciples agreed with him. It was their confession too. They didn't say, oh no, we don't agree with you. Jesus was hearing Peter, really, on behalf of the group, save one. He was truly convinced of what he was saying. Though I am also truly convinced that he was lacking understanding. He was limited his understanding. Remember, little faith is growing. I've already pointed that out. And even in chapter 17, Peter's going to continue to learn about who Jesus is. Remember when, when, when Jesus will say, you know, he says, let's, let's build tabernacles for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And, and this thundering voice from the Father comes forth. This is my... Son. And that's what Jesus is wanting them to see and know. But what Peter is confessing, even limited as it may be, and listen to me, please, please get, there's some things you may hear as I work through these thoughts for just a few moments. You might say, well, I'm not very clear on that. Don't be discouraged. Don't say, well, I must not have any faith. Just say, okay, I believe what I know. I believe what I see. And in that faith, I'm going to keep pressing on. Show me more, Father. Show me more. Because this confession 
that Peter makes is the reality that is in his soul. This is who he knows Jesus to be. Even though he might not have understood all that he was saying. We'll kind of unpack a few thoughts here in a moment. Maybe even more than what Peter understood. But it's true in the statement. In his confession. And Jesus says directly to Peter, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Why? Why does Jesus say, blessed are you? In verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Well, Simon Bar-Jonah reminds you that that was how he was born. That's who he was from birth. That's his natural name. That's his, his Simon, the son of Jonah. And in Luke, excuse me, John chapter 1 verse 42, you know, John points out that that was his name and there Jesus gave him another name. He gave him a name that was translated rock, but it's the name Peter. But he says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Why was Peter blessed? Not simply because he spoke words that were true. But because the origin of that confession was his father who is in heaven. That's what he says. Blessed are you for my father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. My father has. Jesus was not alone in his ministry. His father was with him. And not only was his father with him, he was anointed by the spirit. And you have the triune God here in this passage, really, maybe in sort of a maybe a somewhat of a veiled way, not not really. Because Christ means anointed and Christ is the anointed one and the Holy Spirit, the father anointed his son with the spirit. Peter's confession was a revelation that did not and could not depend upon flesh and blood. Which is really another way of saying that what does flesh and blood mean? It means the natural man. It means man unaided by God. It means you left to yourself. That's what flesh and blood refers to. Had flesh and blood taught him, he would have confessed something else like the others in verse four. He might have had an answer, but it would have been an answer that flesh and blood came up with. Or if flesh and blood had taught him, in other words, had somebody who had who had the answer revealed to them, taught it to him in some catechism sort of way. That's all it would have been. It would have been a catechism kind of answer. Not the answer of one to whom truth was revealed in his soul. The reason Peter was blessed is because it's as if Jesus is saying, your confession of me testifies that my father is relating to you. My father is revealing something to you. My father is involved with you. It's not just about me, it's about my father. 
I have not come simply to reveal me. I have come to make my Father known. And my Father has come. My Father is engaged in making me known. And the Holy Spirit is involved in this revelation, you see. So Peter's confession set him apart from other men. He speaks with certainty as one who who has seen what others have not seen, with a conviction that others do not have. If you could see the literal rendering of verse 16, the confession itself, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are familiar words, but if you could... If you could see the, if, if I could translate it literally, it would sound like this. There is something very definitive being said here. He says, you, an emphasis is upon you, are the Christ, the Son of the God of the living one. The Christ of the Son of the God of the living one. There is no guesswork in that answer. The Christ, the anointed one of God, the long awaited Messiah. While the disciples will yet learn what all this means here with Peter, they are confessing who he is. They are not looking for another. The Christ has come. He is the son of the living God. A confession that really has a great deal of theological truth in it that I'll not be delving into. And Peter will continue to understand as his faith grows. But his confession is the truth about Israel's God. When he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he is He's saying something about Jehovah God. He is saying something about who Jesus is in relationship to Yahweh. To the God of Israel. For Samuel 17, 26, David, you remember he was engaging with Goliath and. And he spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and make and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? There are numerous references to the living God in the Old Testament scriptures. The psalmist in Psalm 42 two, remember his well-known prayer, my soul thirsts for God. Which one? For the living God. Yahweh, the life giving one, the source of life, the one who is being himself. When shall I come and appear before God? And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he is saying when he uses this word son, the son, he's not saying he's one of the many children of God. He's saying you are the son, the unique son. He is connecting him with the living God in a way like no other. You are the son, the son of the God, the living one. The very source of life. Jesus said himself in John 5 and verse 26. For as the father has life in himself. So who is the living God? 
The Father has life in Himself. So who is the living God? The Father? Jesus says, so has He granted the Son to have life in Himself. Who is God? Who is the living God? The Son? The Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. But this is more than an, than an acknowledgement of deity. Well, that's true. He is God. But this is a confession of Jesus' unique relationship with His Father in heaven. The Son of the living God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is, Jesus is speaking of this unique, eternal relationship of of the Father and Himself, the Father and the Son, the Son of the living God. This is the confession of Peter. And Jesus is receiving that confession. And He's saying, my Father has revealed this to you. This is an eternal relationship. This didn't begin in time. I didn't just become the Christ. I didn't just become the Son of the living God. This is speaking to the, to, to the eternal relationship that I have had with my Father who is revealing this to you. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And that's what Jesus did in His ministry, declaring the Father. And in declaring the Father, He was declaring Himself. And in declaring Himself, He was declaring the Father, you see. The truth that is being made known about Jesus and the truth that Peter is declaring could only be revealed by the Father. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 11. In verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Now, it's not just simply because the Father knows all things. It's not simply because the Father is omniscient. I mean, in that sense, He, he knows everything. So sure, He knows the Son. That's not the point. The point is, he, point is He knows the Son in a way that no one knows the Son because of the relationship that the Father and Son eternally have together. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Not because the Son has been informed about things about the Father. Not because the Son's a good student, but because the Son has had an eternal relationship with the Father. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so the revelation of God comes from the Father and from the Son. And so Jesus says, my Father has revealed this to you, unless the Father reveals the Son, no one can really know Him. Not really. I mean, you can study the issue. You can learn about it academically. But Jesus said this, 
In John chapter 6 and verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. This is the new covenant. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You see, here's the thing. If you have come to know Jesus Christ, if you've come into this relationship with this person, Jesus, whom you know to be the Christ, the Son of God, you know you have a relationship with the Father because it's the Father who has made that known to you. You wouldn't know that otherwise. This is what the Apostle Paul understood. This was his testimony in Galatians chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Because flesh and blood can't show you the things that only God is able to show you in the way that you need to see the things that you need to see. Now, God may use flesh and blood. That is an instrument. He may use a teacher. He may use a preacher. But what you and I need is the same thing Peter needed. It's the same thing Paul needed. We need the Father to reveal We need God Himself to reveal to us the Lord Jesus, His Son, and His Son in relationship to Him who was His Father. And this is done by the ministry, the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word. 1 John 5, verses 9 and 10. Let me just mention this. That Jesus did the things that He did in His ministry. And you know that many people saw him, but most people didn't come to the same conclusion that Peter and the disciples came to. And the difference is this, that the father revealed to those disciples, but was not revealed in the same way. There was a revelation to everybody in a sense. Everyone saw it. Everyone saw the mighty works. Everyone saw the signs. And brethren, God has preserved his word. God has preserved those the evidence of those signs and those miracles and those wonders so that the world since then has had access to seeing those very same things. The witness, the testimony of those things. But multitudes read, multitudes hear about it, but it's not revealed to them. So there is a level of revelation In that they're seeing the things that that God has revealed and what has been preserved. But you must enter in by faith. You must believe those things because you see them. You know that they're so. 1 John 5, verses 9 and 10. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed the testimony that God has given of His Son. But when you do believe, 
the testimony that has been given. It is evidence that the Father has revealed and you have responded to that revelation so that you confess as Peter confesses. This is a confession that you must confess. This confession of Peter, while it's familiar, it's critical to everything in the Christian life. What is that confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, the Gospel did not begin at the cross. Did I get some of your attentions there? The Gospel did not begin at the cross. It began, or I might say, it begins with God. The Gospel begins with God. And there's a sense in which we could say, go back into eternity and say, the Gospel began in eternity. It begins with who He is. So that the Father sent His Son. That's why it's so important that you confess who He is. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Father, go to Colossians chapter, chapter one. Colossians chapter one. And the things that I'm saying here, you know, in no way minimize the gospel as we understand the gospel message. But the gospel message is not simply about what was done. The gospel message is about who did it. And it, and it was Jesus Christ. He is the one who died. But it was the Father and the Spirit who were involved in this gospel, in this good news, in the outworking of it. Colossians chapter 1. After really exalting Jesus and His nature in the previous verses, in verse 19, Paul says, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness fullness should dwell. I don't believe here He is simply talking about deity. Though that is true. It is not less than that. But the Father, Paul is seeing this. I think he's seeing what's being expressed in Matthew 16. When Jesus says, my Father has revealed this to you. My Father is looking. My Father is seeing. And my Father is revealing to you that I am the one in whom all the fullness should dwell. You see. I am the one that was sit on this mission and I, I did it willingly. I did it and I'm doing it in love. But it's not that I'm trying to, I'm trying to somehow turn God from being against you to being for you. I'm not trying to make God a loving, the Father a loving, merciful Father. No, I am doing what I'm doing because His fullness, 
is upon me. He's looking upon me with full pleasure. I am doing exactly what He wants me to be doing. And everything about you, if you're going to be brought into a relationship with God, the Father, it's going to be because of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that when you come to Jesus Christ, you're not coming to Him and the Father's out there somewhere. You're coming to Him and in coming to Him, you're coming to the Father as well. So that Paul goes on to say in verse 20, and by Him, by who? The Christ, the Son of the living God, by Him to reconcile all things to him to himself the father god by him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross so here paul is writing on the other side back where we are in matthew it's before that okay so we're after the event but he's acknowledging really the same thing and you who once were alienated and Enemies in your mind by wicked works. That's that's you, sinner. That's you. Yet now he has reconciled. Reconciled. Do, do, Do you know that God was in Christ reconciling the world into himself? Do you know that? That's what that's what Peter's confessing. In the body of his flesh. Verse 22, through death. And so as the Father looks down upon the body of His flesh, the body that was prepared for Him, the body that was made, He's looking not just upon simply the body of flesh. He's not looking simply upon flesh and blood. He's looking upon His own Son. His own eternal Son. His own eternally begotten Son. And in Him, and in that person, now with two natures, that person, the Christ, the Christ, the Son of the living God, everything that God intended for His people, for this world, is being worked out. Oh, you see, many... Religious groups will speak of the cross and they'll speak of the resurrection, but they deny the revelation of the father concerning his son. I, I just recently in the in the prison, this fellow comes up and he says, I believe that Jesus died, I believe that he rose again. I believe in Jesus. Well, do, do, you, do you believe that Jesus is the son of the God of the living one? Do you believe that He was created or Creator? Well, I believe He was created. You don't believe Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God? There is a religious group that has Jesus Christ in their name, right? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They deny that Jesus is the Christ The Son of the God, the Living One. 
This is no small issue. And you see, it's this Jesus that reveals the redeeming God. This Jesus that reveals the God that was talked about all through the Old Testament Scriptures and revealed as the redeeming God. And this is the Messiah, the Christ, who prophesied that would come, the suffering servant, the one who was sent from Yahweh, who indeed was one with Yahweh, who indeed was Yahweh. And it's only if Jesus is who the Father reveals Him to be. Whom the Father reveals Him to be. See, these are kind of like His credentials in a way. If we want to think of it that way. What gives Jesus the right to talk of His death the way He's going to talk about it? What gives Him the right to give such hope? What gives Him the right? It's who He is. Because of who He is. And His Father has given Him all authority, all power in heaven and earth to accomplish everything He was sent to accomplish. You see? So that because He is whom the Father reveals Him to be, He's capable of being the propitiation for our sins. And He's able to give eternal life and reconcile us to God. We cannot relate to God our Father apart from the Christ, the Son of God. By Him all things are reconciled to God. So how important? How important is it? How important is your answer to this question that Jesus asked His disciples? Who do you say I am? Would you, would you just listen to a few Scriptures here? Listen to the Word of God. May the Spirit of God help you to hear. May the Father teach you. If you... If you haven't been taught, or if you have been taught and He's teaching you more. Listen. Interacting with the Jews, Jesus said this, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You must believe who He is. Then they said to Him, Who are you? By the way, that's a good question to ask. Who is Jesus? Not a bad question. Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I haven't changed my tune. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. I am one with my father. And I'm saying to you the things that my father has said. If you're listening to me, you're listening to my father. John 20, verse 31. John wrote his gospel. Why? In order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not just so that you might know what He did. But that you might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in His name. In the name of the life-giving One. Philip answered the eunuch's inquiry about what hindered him from being baptized in Acts 8.37 with these words, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was baptized. 1 John 4.15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the 
Son of God. God abides in him. And he in God. First John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Who do you, who do you say that He is? I mean, really, can you answer with confidence, even with little faith, that is still growing in your understanding? Can you say, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? If so, then blessed are you with Peter. For you have a relationship with His Father who has revealed His Son to your soul. And to those of you who are searching, are you one of those that's seeking? You're not sure. You're asking questions. You say you want to know. Why don't you ask the Father? Why don't you just ask Him? Why don't you just pray? Why don't you just cry out to God? To reveal His Son to your soul. So that you can confess with confident faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The life-giving God who joined Himself with humanity, with our flesh, to live, to die, and to rise victoriously. To redeem sinners just like you. Do you hear hope there? There is hope there. There is hope there for every single soul under the sound of my voice. There is hope. And if God has allowed you to be under the sound of this voice, trust that it's because He has wanted you to hear these words of hope. Oh God. Oh God.